Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Thank you, orchestra. From Augustine to John Wesley, the Book of Romans has had a dramatic impact on the development of Christian thought. John Calvin said that when Christians come to understand this letter from Paul, they have a passageway opened for them to understand the whole of Scripture. Paul's letter is beautiful, but it's also long and at times complex. The letter wrestles with issues and realities that dive into what it means to be human and our deep need for justification and salvation. Today we find Paul in a moment of what seems to be self-reflection, contemplating his own desires and his own need for grace. Let us turn and listen to what Paul is thinking about. From Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good, but in fact, it is no longer that I do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For the delight, I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another war, another law of war with the law of mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then in my mind I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I am a slave to the law of sin. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Love is breaking us, love remains. 
conversation recently with someone who works in the field of philanthropy. He has raised billions, literally billions of dollars over his career for primarily research hospitals and universities, uh, primarily from high net worth individuals. In other words, uh, he, uh, he goes and speaks with very wealthy people and they in uh, response, write very large checks. And so I thought I'd get some pointers as a pastor. <laughs> What's your secret? I asked him. I mean, how have you been so incredibly successful? And his response to me was stunning, not just for the simplicity of his statement, but for the beauty of it. He said to me, I'm not in the business of raising funds. I'm not a fundraiser. He said, my business is to, get this, help people arrive before they depart. To help people arrive before they depart. What did he mean by that? Most of his benefactors that he works with are innovators, entrepreneurs, top-level executives in the corporate world, they, along the way, have been focused their entire adult life on trying to turn a product, a passion, an idea into a profit. And in the process, many of them have made significant personal sacrifices in their lives. Perhaps they have sidelined or neglected certain ideals, parts of their own personal lives or their families. All the things that might have made for a more meaningful life along the way, they had to maybe put aside. Maybe they confused along the way who they are with what they do, their outward persona with their inward true identity. Maybe they were so consumed by their work that along the way they were unable to truly invest in the world. Eventually, they come to the end of their careers or even the end of their lives, and they begin to get more reflective. They start looking for, for meaning. What would my legacy be? What contribution will I make? And so my friend's task is to help them contribute to what matters most, or as he says, to help them arrive before they depart. Is it possible that we can live our entire lives never arriving, never knowing truly who we are and what we were meant to do with this life of ours. The greatest tragedy in life and maybe our greatest fear is that someday we might stand before God at the end of our lives only then to discover who we really were, who we really are, to discover that we weren't the person we portrayed ourselves or projected onto the world after all, but that we were someone different. I was driving to work five years ago this very week. It was a Tuesday morning. I was listening to NPR News when it was announced that the poet Derek Walcott had just passed away. The reporter gave a brief biography of 
Walcott's life, and then a narrator came on and recited one of Walcott's most famous poems, Love After Love. This is what I heard. Listen to this. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say sit here eat you will love again the stranger who was yourself give wine Give bread. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. I heard that poem driving to work, and as I heard it, I had to pull over. Such great truth. It's about arriving before we depart and welcoming the stranger who, as Walcott says, we have ignored our whole life, but who knows us by heart. Simply put, who is a stranger? It is our true self. Walcott says we ignore that stranger, but the truth is, I think most of the time we repress it, and often with fierce intensity. There is in every one of us a lifelong battle between that stranger or our true self And the self that we have chosen, that is our outward persona, the person that we want ourselves and others to believe we are. It is a universal human struggle, and it plays out daily in our lives. The Apostle Paul describes it in the passage you heard Reverend Lauren just read. He says, what I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way and then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. The power of sin, he says, within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, he says, don't result in actions. Something gets the better of me. Does this sound familiar? Is this this something that you can relate to, this inner battle that, that Paul describes? I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but I do it anyway. I think Paul in this passage names a painful truth for many of us that to be human is to live with the unsettling awareness that in our lives there are glaring contradictions. 
We know in our hearts what's right, what's good, but there's often a gap between what we know and what we do, between our best intentions and our actions. And Paul says, we know the good we're supposed to do, we know it because we have the law revealed in Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. We have this law, and that law contains 613 commandments. Some of these commandments, for a lot of Christians, seem rather trivial, but when you take them all together, ultimately what they tell us is how we can live our lives with integrity, with generosity, how we can treat others with compassion and fairness, how we can settle disputes, resolve conflicts, how we can build and maintain a just society. These commandments, when you take them all together, they form the bedrock of what we would call today right and wrong. Paul says these commandments, they're holy, they're necessary. We can know them, we can aspire to fulfill them, we can genuinely intend to honor them in our daily living. But we don't actually get around to doing them very well. Paul says there's something at work within us, a, a power that works against us, against our highest ideals. It gets the better of us. We do the very thing we we know we shouldn't do. We fail to do what we know is right. He says our will is strong. The flesh is weak. It trips us up. This humanness, our weaknesses, our imperfections. So what is at the heart of this battle that's going on in us? Paul says it's not the rules. The rules are good. He says it's not that we're inherently bad rule followers, although... The surest way to get somebody to do something is to tell them not to do it. So, but that's not really our problem. Paul says it's something else. And what he, he calls it is the power of sin. Uh, that's a tough word, isn't it? It's so loaded. So many Christians today have gotten this word sin. They've misused it. They've abused it so much that it's lost its true meaning and impact. Most of the time we think of sin as some individual transgression, a moral transgression or, or uh, some act that we do that, that betrays the, the will of God, like stealing, like cheating, lying, like just being a general jerk. These things, um, you know, constitute sin, but none of them, according to Paul, quite get to the heart of the struggle. Uh, the Greek word here that Paul uses It's so very important. It unlocks this whole passage for us. Uh, The Greek word for sin is the word hamartia. And there are two origins of the Greek word hamartia, but surprisingly, neither of them are very theological or spiritual. The first origin of the word hamartia is from Greek archery, the sport of archery. Hamartia literally means to miss the bullseye. And if you've ever shot an arrow from a bow, you know how difficult it is to hit the bullseye. You draw the string, you set your aim, you release the arrow. Sometimes you miss the bullseye. If you're like me, you miss the whole bale of hay. (laughs) And so maybe what Paul's talking about, this power of sin, is, is really referring to missing the bullseye of God's law by, by breaking one of those rules. But, but there's another more important use of this word hamartia, 
another origin of this word. I think it unlocks the whole passage for us. It comes not from Greek archery, but from Greek tragedy. In Greek theater, the word hamartia was known as the tragic flaw. That inherent defect or shortcoming in the hero of a, of a play. A hero who is otherwise superior in every way, except he's got this little issue, right? And every Greek tragedy, it, it turns, it hinges on hamartia, the tragic flaw of the hero. Othello, his hamartia was his jealousy. Hamlet's was his procrastination. Romeo's was his ruthlessness. Juliet's was her impulsiveness. Every great tragedy has hamartia, a tragic flaw in the hero. And what is this power of sin that Paul talks about that trips us up? It's not necessarily some individual act or sin or transgression. It's actually what precedes the deed itself. And the ancients called it hamartia. That's what gets in our way. I prefer to think of sin primarily as impairment. At the heart of sin is this, is this impaired relationship either with God or with each other or with ourselves. And this, this hamartia that Paul speaks of here, it has to do with this impaired relationship with ourselves, this battle that's going on between who we project ourselves to be, who we really are inside. The great mystic and monk Thomas Merton, he spoke of this as the false self. He said the false self is this persona that we project onto the world. It's the person that we try to be that doesn't think it needs God's guidance or God's love. And this false self is like an amalgam of all the values and expectations that the world puts onto us. You can think of some of these. Culture, your religion, your country of origin perhaps, your gender, your education, your job, your politics, your family of origin, all of your achievements. Well, the world tells us who we're supposed to be and what it is that will get us noticed and validated and affirmed. And so we go through this life wrapping ourselves in all of these labels. You can think of a few. Democrat, Republican, Christian, American, male, female, gay, straight, preacher, teacher, nurse, skinny, smart, funny, educated, wealthy. You can add, think about what gets you affirmed. Just add that to your list. All these labels, they stick to us. This is how we navigate our way through this world. They help us get through life. They're wonderful. They're not bad, necessarily. In fact, they're very useful. They, they lead to jobs. They lead to love. They lead us to tribes of people where we belong. They lead us to positions of influence or status. So we think that's who we are. But it turns out these are just the costumes that we wear. And each of these costumes has 
a shadow to them. Because if these costumes ever were taken off, then we would be seen for who we really are, the true self. And so we do everything possible to keep these costumes on. We will sometimes become striving, sometimes pretentious, manipulative, clingy, deceptive, duplicitous. So, for example, if, you're, if success is your chosen costume in this world, you might be inclined to bend the rules sometimes or to cut corners or even to undercut people around you in order to climb the ladder, you see. If wealth is your chosen costume, you might be inclined to cheat or to steal or maybe to cook the books if you have to just to get ahead. If best mom or dad is your chosen costume, we might uh, drive our kids to uh, achieve, overachievement. We might over-exaggerate their accomplishments on Facebook. We might resort to snow plowing or helicoptering with our kids. In other words, we will become whatever we need to be in that moment to get what we need, the validation, the affirmation, until at some point we no longer know who we really are. We lose ourselves. The ancient Greeks also had a name for this. In the Greek, it was hypocrites, from which we get the word hypocrites. And a hypocrite in Greek, tra- in Greek theater was simply one character or, or one person who played two characters. And they, they couldn't get off stage in time, so they just wore two different masks. A hypocrite was somebody who simply wore multiple masks. Uh, do you remember the great death of a salesman, Arthur Miller's great tragedy. Willie Loman is so obsessed with being a big shot. Even into his 60s, he's, he's striving for a life that he'll never have. He's exaggerating his successes, successes. He's covering up his failures. And everybody knows who Willie Loman really is, except for Willie Loman. And when the truth finally dawns on him, it's too much for him to bear. He takes his life, and there's this wonderful, difficult, heartfelt scene where the son is standing at the grave, Biff, and announces to the family. He says he had the wrong dreams. He never knew who he was. Hamartia. It's the tragic flaw that impairs our relationship with ourselves, with our true self. One of the greatest personal achievements in life is to arrive before we depart, to know and love our true self, not to deny the outward false self, it's who we are, but to reconcile them. And why is it so difficult? One writer put it this way, he said, in all creation, identity is a challenge only for humans. A tulip knows exactly what it is. It's never tempted by false ways or being, nor does it face complicated decisions in the process of becoming. So it is with dogs, rocks, trees, stars, amoebas, electrons. All give glory to God by being exactly what they are. Humans, however, encounter more challenging existence. We think, 
We consider options, we decide, we act, we doubt. And he says, simple being is tremendously difficult to achieve and fully authentic being is extremely rare. How do we recognize that false self and manage it? Well, we might start by asking ourselves, where in my life am I most fearful? Where am I most self-protective or possessive? When do I become manipulative, destructive to others or myself? When am I ever self-promoting? When I judge others, what is it that I'm judging about them? What is the, true, the truth about myself, my, my, my weaknesses or my past that, that I try to keep from other people? Years ago, Lori and I, when we were living in Southern California, in fact, years ago, I was a youth pastor. We, we took a group of kids to Disneyland in Anaheim, and we, uh, we got there. We ditched the kids, and Lori and I, I was ki- I'm kidding. <laughs> we, went, we went to um, the, roller, the indoor roller coaster, Space Mountain, uh, and it was awesome. We were traveling through deep space at the speed of light. It was pitch black. There's stars. That's all you can see. And moments into the ride, our rocket ship came to an abrupt halt right there in space. And after several minutes, a voice came on over the loudspeaker, and it said, uh, the lights will be coming on shortly, uh, but please step off the rocket ship and traverse the catwalk to the emergency exit. There's been a mechanical problem. And when the lights came on, our whole perception of Disneyland suddenly changed. And the happiest place on earth became the dirtiest place on earth. Below the tracks, strewn across that concrete floor, a million pounds of chewing gum, dozens of sunglasses and Mickey Mouse ears, water bottles, trash, all the stuff that you never see when the lights are off. Maybe that's the true self. Something so real, messy, unadorned, something so deeply human and in need of love. You ever worried that if the lights were turned on, if your shadows were exposed, if your true self was revealed, you might not stack up. You might be less than lovely or worthy. Our true self is the self that we knew before we knew the world and before the world ever knew us. It's the naked self before all the labels and costumes get attached. The psalmist in Psalm 139 describes it as the inmost being. It's our essence our eternal self, the self that God knows and loves. And every day it's assaulted by the false self. The false self says, I am invincible. And the true self says, I'm vulnerable. The false self says, I am worthy because of my achievements. And the true self says, I worry 
that I might be failing. The false self says, everything is just great. The true self says, something's right, not right. The false self says, don't mess with me. And the true self says, I'm really afraid. The false self says, I'm strong. And the true self says, I'm really fragile. And here's the problem. On most days, the world only lets the voice of the false self speak. And it gets added to the cacophony of other false self voices in this world so that all we ever experience is shouting and division and arguments. This is why we can't talk about forgiveness during Lent without accepting the fact that these two selves have to be reconciled within us. Paul says the false self, living for the false self, it leads to a lot of unnecessary suffering a kind of unpeace in our lives. And so he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he points to Christ. Why? Because Christ is the one who comes looking for the true, honest, vulnerable, messy self in the world and calls it beautiful. The prostitute, the beggar, the leper, the criminal, these are the ones Jesus was always attracted to. A man came into my office at my previous church. He was a minority partner in a real estate firm. And one day he came across some very difficult information about one of his partners, a deal that the partner had had broken. And while it was all seemingly legal, it wasn't ethical. And it ran against the grain of his character, his faith, and so he spoke up. He brought it to the partners and said, we need to fix this. And by the end of the week, they had taken a vote. And they had voted him out of the partnership. And they cut him a check for his share. And I felt terrible for him. His life was going to be different for a while. But surprisingly, he said to me, I'm fine. In fact, something in me tells me it's what I had to do to be the person I was created to be. He said, it was hard, but I did the right thing. And it's like a huge burden has been lifted. Living for the true self. Arriving before we depart. And so Derek Walcott, the poet, says, Give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you your whole life. Whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Today's takeaways. Our life purpose is to arrive before we depart. Our life struggle is trying to become someone we're not while denying the person we really are. In the eyes of God, the real and unadorned is lovely and worthy enough. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.